Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. My mother wasn't one of those people who was trying to get a handout. She sold her blood on a regular basis. She would go to the blood bank and sell her blood to feed her children. And she was working overnight managing a convenience store to take care and feed her children and even go to school. She was trying to go back to school. And one of those nights, because of the environment that we're in, somebody tried to rob the store. And my mom, she, you know, she's a big lady, you know, but he had a knife and he stabbed her eight times. And she still subdued him until the police came. And when you're saying people just need to work harder so they can get out of the situation, you don't understand that because of the situation that you're in, you can die. And it's a whole new level of stress that you're not accustomed to. And when the, the physician told her these words, if it wasn't for your weight, if it wasn't for your extra weight, you would have been dead. Do you think she's ever, ever going to let that weight go? It's her safety and security in the world. Hey there, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. So my guest this week, I've been a huge fan of his work for years now because he's one of the smartest, most informed and insightful voices on all things health and wellness. His name is Sean Stevenson, and he's a highly sought after speaker the author of the best-selling book, Sleep Smarter, and his most recent book, Eat Smarter, just came out. And Sean is the host of the mega-popular podcast, which you've probably heard of before, called The Model Health Show. Sean is like a walking health encyclopedia. I mean, the guy can pronounce those really difficult eight-syllable names of various hormones and biochemicals, and he can cite obscure studies that either prove or disprove whatever kind of point you're trying to make about what's healthy or what's not healthy. When I first came on his show as a guest, right after my meditation book, Bliss More, came out, Sean surprised me because he even knew all of the little-known meditation studies that I'd been familiar with after only years of teaching. But his true gift is in making all of this complex information and these concepts accessible for the average person. And that's why his platform has become the go-to place to find out about the efficacy of these various health studies and claims. Each episode is literally like a masterclass on some aspect of achieving better health. And in this conversation, we're going to unpack Sean's journey, his backstory, from a fast food eating, no sleep getting, pill popping couch potato to the six pack ab having, supplement consuming model of health that he's become today. And within that journey, Sean had to overcome some serious health drama of his own, such as randomly breaking his hip while running track as a teenager, which was an injury that ended his athletic pursuit early. 
And then a few years later, he got diagnosed with a degenerative spine condition where doctors told him that he had the spine of an 80-year-old man. Oh, and that his only option was surgery and a life of agony. And Sean got a second opinion, and then a third opinion, and even a fourth opinion, and they all said the same thing. But guess what? Sean proved them all wrong. He changed his diet, he started exercising, and he began taking his sleep more seriously. And within six months, he had reclaimed his health, which is a message that he now preaches today. No matter what the doctors tell you, he says, there is always the possibility of healing if you give your body what it needs. And Sean is speaking from lots of experience as he literally regenerated his own spine tissue, which is something his doctors had never seen before. So we talk about all of that. We talk about what his mindset was like at that time and how he got inspired to help other people. And this is during a time where Sean was also dealing with being racially profiled by police dozens of times while commuting in and around Ferguson, Missouri. Anyway, it was an incredibly rich conversation full of wonderful stories and nuggets of wisdom, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, I present to you the model of health himself, Mr. Sean Stevenson. Sean, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. I'm so grateful for you and your influence in my life. I find you to be a very inspiring person. So I'm just, I'm excited to dive into this conversation. And as always, I like to start these episodes out by talking about childhood. And so my first question for you is, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? Holy moly. This is such a beautiful question. And it's such an honor, man, to to be an inspiration to somebody who inspires so many, man. That means a lot, really. Like that just made my whole day, man. What jumps up for me when you ask that question, I'm just going to share what came up, was the Thundercats. All right, Thundercats. And it's not just tied to the toy itself, but but the nostalgia and the feeling around it. My grandmother, you know, I lived with my grandmother from the early kind of early part of my childhood. Uh, it was a very beautiful, magical place. And we live in like a little suburban neighborhood. I walked to school just not even half a block away to get to my elementary school. I ducked behind the bushes after school. And like I save a little bit of my lunch and my cousin Candy and I would have lunch, like a little post elementary, you know, tough school day picnic together. But Thundercats was my jam. And my grandmother made holidays and birthdays special. She got me all the little action figures, you know, Lionel, Panthra, Mumra. So I had all these little characters, but it was that after school cartoons too. And this was just a very influential segment of my childhood, because as you know, things changed a lot after leaving the the confines and the, the security under my grandmother's roof. So that's the first thing that came up. My favorite toy was Thundercats. And that experience that she made everything so magical was tied to it. Did you relate more to a certain character in the Thundercats? And did you have people or friends that you played with or watched Thundercats with? Ah, such a great question. I definitely felt connected to Lionel. And it wasn't just because, you know, he's the leader. He wasn't a stereotypical leader either. He was like a child who suddenly became a man. 
And I definitely felt very much like that in my circumstances, you know. I felt like I had this power, but I also felt like I was a victim to so much that was going on around me. And it was just so tough to navigate and figure it out and inherently making a lot of mistakes. And for me, though, I was missing the rest of the team, like the the other influences to guide me outside of the, you know, Lionel, like he has Chaga. Chaga was like his mentor who passed away and like his spirit would talk to him. And I guess that was like the early template that I had was my grandmother and my grandfather being these kind of early mentors that, you know, again, after I left their safety and security, you know, I didn't really have a team around me to help me to navigate very new circumstances. So Mm -hmm. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. So I want to just fill in some of the gaps here before, because you've talked about this a lot on other interviews. What were the circumstances behind you? being with your grandparents versus your mother when you were a kid? So my mother had me very young. Well, young in our culture. She was 18 years old. I have my birth certificate in the other room. There's no father on the birth certificate. It's just my mother's name. She was 18. And just to give me opportunity. And also she's figuring things out with my my stepfather, who... I thought he was my father until I was like 10 years old. I didn't know because he was always there, you know, since I literally, I think I was nine months old when they got together, but they were just trying to navigate. They had some time where they were homeless, you know, spent a couple of nights in the park, but they always found a a roof over their head, but it was also very, just a volatile environment. You know, a lot of people don't realize this because, you know, they think about St. Louis, like old St. Louis, but many times been the murder capital of the United States that city and being able to navigate that because my mom partially like her childhood. And also she kept taking us there as well. Like East St. Louis was really run down area, but it also beautiful. There's so many beautiful, wonderful people there. Just like with anywhere, you know, there's going to be the good and the not so good and people just trying to survive. And so my mom was really in survival. That's where she was at. And I clearly, I know this later, I didn't understand the time, but she was not abiding by the standards that my grandparents had because their lives had different dynamics of, you know, being traumatic, you know? And so now they really found a beauty and they were an entity together. They were such a powerful force of love and good. And they knew that there was a better way, but my mom was so in, in just, I guess maybe entangled, entangled is a big word, 2020, entangled in the drama, you know? So just to give me an opportunity. And I think, and I'm going to share this with you, man. I wish my grandmother was here. Like her picture is right over there. She means so much to me I, because she's the only person I can get a real truthful, straight answer from. Mm. Um, but there was an incident. I was in preschool. So I was four years old and I was living with my mother still. I spent a lot of time in my grandmother's house, but I wasn't living with her yet. And I kept getting into little, little tussles with the kid next door, Alfonso. You know, I'll never forget. Now, Alfonso was like in first grade. He's bigger, you know, a couple of years on me, you know, but we would we would get in these tussles. And my mother wanted me to be a tough guy. Like she knew that the world was hard. She's known for fighting herself. My stepfather's a boxer. Like just, man, don't come back crying that somebody hurt you. And so I kept on like, Alfonso, you know, keep fighting, keeps hitting me, whatever. And so my mother. And Alfonso's 
I think it might have been his aunt, his mother. I don't remember who the other figure was on his side, but there was another adult there as well. There was three adults and they, they, we were outside on the stoop, right? So there was two adults sitting on one side, one adult sitting on the other. And they had me and Alfonso fight each other, like a little miniature UFC match with two little babies. And I remember very viscerally the feeling like I felt like I don't want to do this. Why are you making me do this? Why are you doing this to me? And as soon as they made us fight, like, go get him. Alfonso pushed me. And there was a brick wall, the corner of the brick wall, the stoop right behind me. And I have this huge scar on the back of my head to this day. It busted my head wide open. It was blood everywhere. And they rushed me into the hospital. And I remember being on the stretcher and I remember the lights going over my face. And I was just yelling like, I'll get Alfonso. I'll get him. I promise I'll get him because I didn't want to disappoint her as well. And of course, they had to put me to sleep. I was just so you know, agitated. So they put me to sleep. I got the stitches. But the next day or two, Alfonso was out in the back digging a hole. And I took a Tonka truck, the big yellow metal Tonka trucks that are probably illegal now. And I clocked him like I hit, I, I put it on him. And I felt so proud of myself because I was defending my honor. I was standing up for myself. But man, it was, a, it, was set, it set in place a cycle of really kind of twisted thinking and behavior and how we, how we solve our problems in the Stevenson household was through violence. Mm-hmm. So, but shortly after that incident is when I've lived with my grandmother. So I think <laughs> it has something to do with it, but my mother would never tell me. My grandmother would, you know, I wish I could ask her this question, but since their kindergarten up through the end of second grade, my life changed dramatically. And it was just a, such a different, beautiful, I think our lives are really like a patchwork quilt of experiences. Mm -hmm. And these were just such joyful, colorful moments and experiences. And not to mention my grandparents were white. This is the white side of my family taking in this little caramel boy with his little Afro, you know, and they just love me so much, you know? And I remember times, you know, I remember being out at Venture, you know, Venture is like a Kmart for folks that don't know, but we were out at Venture and like somebody said something to my grandmother, you know, about me. And I remember like her holding me tight, like pulling me in and like, I just remember this like defensive, like Mamba, you know, type of thing. Just like, don't you ever kind of, you know, feeling and just, you know, she just really loved me, you know? So that's, that was the circumstances that led to me actually moving from my mother's care and then to my grandmother. But after second grade, my grandfather kept having all these health problems because of some of the things that I work on now today, largely inspired by them in the health field, but he had open heart surgery and He's a country boy. You know, he grew up in Piedmont, Missouri, which I know nobody's heard of this. It's like in the boot hills, gravel road, that whole thing. Like they literally lived like in the woods in a cabin. And so they moved back there. And it was either this little caramel kid's going to go and move to like clan country or I'm going to go back and move with my mother. And so that's when that culture shift again happened for me. Was there any discussion of race in your mom's house as a four-year-old and with your stepdad versus with your grandparents? Did they just, was that like the third rail for them? Yeah, never. I never saw or experienced anything to do with race. I really didn't realize that I was different, to be honest, until Mm -hmm. my environment outside of their care let me know that, you know, the kids at school kind of thing, you know, like when I was living with my grandmother, it was 95% white school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they they started calling me names, you know, and I remember that very viscerally. And then 
moving with my mother after second grade to, you know, city school that was, I mean, this is 99.5% black. So it was a big culture shock for me. And now suddenly I'm different again. However, like this environment is much more inviting of me, you know, like I felt more at home in a sense, like I felt more accepted, but I didn't like, these are not words you think about as a little kid, but it just, everything seemed to be like a better fit as far as my peer group. your mental state like at that time in your life as a child? Was there angst? Was there frustration? Were you happy? It it was definitely a mixed bag. I had my little brother and sister, my stepfather, my mother. So they had come along. And by the way, so I would go and visit and live with them on the weekends very often. And there were times, you know, like I was, I'm sleeping on the floor with my little brother, you know, the mouse traps around us. You know what I mean? (laughs) But my mom found, always found ways to make things special. Still, like, I know she loved me, you know, absolutely. You know, she worked overnight at Magic Market, you know, like a 7-Eleven knockoff. And she'd bring me this, like, I love these little baseball cards and the gum and that kind of thing. And so she found ways to make things happen, make me feel special. But it was definitely frustrating to go from so much just being, like, magical moments to, like, Christmas, for example. It's like a magical experience at my grandma's house. To like now we're literally getting gifts from shelters many times, you know, the Hosea house. So we get these free gifts and like, it was like three years in a row. I got Yahtzee every year. (laughs) Like I don't even, I still to this day don't know how to play Yahtzee, you know, but that's the gift they kept giving us. That definitely bothered me because it just be like, mom, you know, can I have mom? Can I, can we do this mom? Can And she had those things, you know, the list of answers. Like, do I look like I'm made out of money? I'm Mm -hmm. broke as a joke. Just all these statements, like they were just, boom, hitting me with them. I'm like, mom, I'm hungry. She's like, I'm Linda. Nice to meet you. You know? (laughs) But then we also had these beautiful experiences of like, you know, being able to go to the corner store myself and like taking some pennies and like being able to buy candy and food stamp Christmas would come along. And just these different types of experiences. So there were like much, there were these highs because everything was so low. So it created Mm -hmm. this really wonderful contrast but I think that the probably the biggest change in the emotional state or in my experience was the, the lack suddenly of a feeling of safety and security. You know, going to sleep with my grandmother, we had a routine and I knew what I was going to see when I woke up in the morning, what to expect. Now I might wake up to people fighting. I might wake up to gunshots. I might wake up and see blood on the floor. I might wake up and see my mother has a black eye. It was just so uncertain. And at any moment, we never know what can happen, you know, whether it's outside the doors or within the doors of my household, you know, just a lot of people on my stepfather's side, you know, my uncles, I mean, many of them have actually they've passed away from overdosing, you know, like this is around the time when crack hit the scene. And uh, even my stepfather, he's today, he's in a uh, adult living facility because of crack. And he has, you know, chronic seizures now, but he's such a good person. His heart is good, but he's a victim of his circumstances as well. You know, mm-hmm. he was doing the best out of his brothers. Like he made it the longest, but it's just, it's so difficult. No matter how good you are, when you're surrounded by so much toxicity, 
You know, he was just responding to what, and this is why I can do this work today and not judge people so heavily because I definitely was judging them. Most of the time I couldn't stand him because it was just a, you, it was a t- ticking time bomb because he was so frustrated and un- unhappy. And there was this little grace period, this little window of him drinking, like the early part of it where he was super nice. Like this is the only time he's tell, tell us he love us. He's like, I love y'all. I love y'all, <laughs> you know, you get pizza, you know, but then after that grace period, it starts to get very questionable mm-hmm. and, you know, more of the kind of like insensitive, violent behavior can take hold. So that was the biggest adjustment that I never really adjusted to. Like as soon as possible, I was getting the hell out of there. Your mom also, she, uh, she got stabbed one night working at the convenience store. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I shared that story before and, you know, in, in my new book, Eat Smarter, because, you know, there's basically there's so and you know, this everything is so polarizing right now. And there's these like two camps of just like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just work harder. You can achieve it. You got to you got to take care of you. No, nothing stopping you today. And this other side of just like the whole system is against us. You don't understand that no matter what I do, you know, the system needs to change so I can change. When in truth, it's both. It's both. And I share this story to articulate. My mother wasn't one of those people who was trying to get a handout. She sold her blood on a regular basis. She would go to the blood bank and sell her blood to feed her children. And she was working overnight managing a convenience store to take care and feed her children and even go to school. She was trying to go back to school. And one of those nights, because of the environment that we're in, somebody tried to rob the store and my mom, she, you know, she's a thick lady, but he had a knife and he stabbed her eight times and she still subdued him until the police came. And when you're saying people just need to work harder so they can get out of the situation, you don't understand that because of this, the situation that you're in, you can die. And it's a whole new level of stress that you're not accustomed to. And the physician told her these words. If it wasn't for your weight, if it wasn't for your extra weight, you would have been dead. Do you think she's ever, ever going to let that weight go? It's her (laughs) safety and security in the world. And this programming, you know, just begins to feed into itself. And so, you know, I just wanted to share that, that it's both. It is a part of you taking responsibility for your life, but also understanding that Millions upon millions upon millions of people in this country right now today are in conditions that they just can't just go out their door and go for that walk you're telling them to do so they can be healthier because mm-hmm. it is literally a life or death situation. And we take our comforts for granted. How old were you when that happened? This is when this was when I was a visitor coming to you know stay on the weekends. So mm-hmm. this was first, second grade. So I was probably somewhere around six. Mm. When it happened. So and I did you remember, f- yeah, I remember right. the pictures afterwards, you know, like I, I, I don't really remember seeing her, but I remember coming across the pictures later on that was in a manila folder and it just, mm. it looked like a crime scene, you know, obviously, you know, seeing the stab wounds. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. 
That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You learn from your mom how to survive, and you learn from your grandmother the value of education. So in the how to survive category, what were some of the learnings that you got from your mom at that time? The first thing that's coming up is the ability to make something out of nothing. I think it's a a very powerful quality when it's used for good. You know, So, so often when we didn't have, she would always find a way. And that's so true about all of us, especially everybody listening. Every trying circumstance you faced that you thought you would make it through, you did. You found a way. But so often we don't use that capacity until we absolutely have to. So t- being able to find ways to pay the rent or find ways to you know, find a new place to live when we can't pay the rent, finding creative ways to, to feed you know, her children, to make you know, something out of nothing with the food that we do have. So all of these small things, finding ways, you know, we were layaway. We had the layaway, you know, for the clothes, you know, but finding a way we had the nostalgia of going shopping, even though we wasn't about to take that stuff home with us. You know, she put a little bit of money on it and then come back. But oftentimes, you know, the clothes are out of style or we outgrow it by the time she paid the the layaway off. But, you know, just finding ways to make something out of nothing. And I definitely took that with me because, as you could imagine, I started to repeat many of the behaviors that I was around subconsciously. I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want to be like the people in my environment that I could see were hurting other people and hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. But you, it's very difficult because it becomes integrated into your psyche. And so she definitely taught me, taught me that. And also just the, in my, I think it would be much better if someone else told you this, but my wife being able to tell you this and see this little personality trait that she saw. I mean, not as much today, but it's still, it's still there of like, man, like for real, just don't play with me, you know? (laughs) And so just having that thread has helped me to survive in many circumstances that I faced. And especially the circumstance and the, of anybody trying to oppress me or tell me that there's something that I can't do Mm. because I will find a way. You know, so I guess it's this little, it's this internal aggression, you Mm -hmm. know, that I've helped to recently, you know, in recent years, transmutate that into something more positive, 
but it was definitely something that I was carrying around for many years. And as you know, I was kind of like looking for a problem. I was looking for the person to challenge me. I was looking for the person that's going to judge me ever since Alfonso. And so I ended up, I got suspended from middle school, probably four or five times for fighting high school. I got expelled. I got kicked out my entire junior year. And at the time when this happened, I was scholar athlete on student advisory. I was one of the first kids accepted into a new program with St. Louis University to take college credit as a high school student. Right. I was killing it academically and as also as an athlete. But I felt somebody, this person kept challenging me, you know, and I kept turning the other cheek, turning the other cheek. But eventually, you know, I just let I let it all go. I, I really it, it was this thing I remember in my mind, like, you don't know me. You don't know me. And that ended up with me losing, you know, ultimately every action you take from this aggressive state, you end up hurting yourself, you know? And so you would think I would learn after that, but I, oh, little fun fact is that I did actually still graduate with my class on time. I took correspondence courses. I went to zero hour. I had extra credits that I had accumulated. So that was a miracle. And I got accepted to every college I applied to. You mentioned that there was a wiffle ball incident with your mother. It was the first time you heard her say, I'm sorry. Mm. And that inspired you to seek the truth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, like. Because that, that's a crucial part of the whole story, you know? Yeah. So this <laughs> was one of those times I went to visit my mom, you know, for the weekend. Uh, I was in second grade. Mm. And. Once I was living with my mom full time, I mean, to be real, every day it was just kind of like, how am I going to get my ass whooped today? You know, how am I going to get in trouble today? Because it wasn't that I was a bad kid or that my brother and sister were bad kids. It's just we're kids. But my mother and my stepfather, especially my mother, because she was with us most of the time, just had a very short fuse. You know, like it's constant yelling, constant, constant yelling and constant whooping our ass. And this particular day, the nearest thing was a plastic wiffle ball bat. And she was hitting me with that. You know, she was, she was beating me with it and she accidentally hit me in the eye with it. And I had like, my eye became like bloodshot red and just looked really messed up. And I'm just a little kid again, somewhere around, you know, six years old. And of course I would love to talk to my grandmother about this, but I remember this is the first time my mother, she told me what to say to people that, mm. that, that I got hurt doing something else, mm -hmm. you know? And so this is the story. Basically she told me to lie and I had never been told to lie before. And I'd never been told by an adult to lie before. And so I remember telling my teacher, my teacher was like, Oh my gosh, Sean, what happened to you? I remember her like leaning in. I was like, Oh, you know, I fell or, you know, just gave her the story that I was told to give and something just festered in me. Like it just didn't feel right because it just didn't feel right. Now, within that, this was the first time in my recollection of her like sitting me down and apologizing to me, which was so unexpected because she, you know, whooped my butt many times, but she apologized. And so I know that it wasn't intentional, but at the same time, what are you doing hitting your child with a bat? You know what I mean? But these were the inception moments of today. I really pride myself on just being honest. And my wife knows this. We just, she just shared this story with a friend the other day 
The hardest thing I've ever done in, in our relationship with my wife and I was throwing a surprise birthday party for her like three years ago. And I set things up so I wouldn't have to lie. You know, I, I set things up so, you know, she just didn't know whatever. But then like a call, phone call came in and I had to lie to her. Mm. You know, it was a tiny little lie for her, but it like, it really bothered me. It really bothered me. And, you know, eventually, of course, I shared it with her. She's like, what are you, so what? What are you tripping for? But I just want to tell the truth because it, it takes away the accountability and responsibility of growth and, and change. Like if you got to apologize for something or if there's something you got to lie about, there's something that's not aligned. And to couple that with, you know, my mom, who just a, a survival mechanism she's built up, is she doesn't know the difference between lying and honesty. It's one and the same. And that's why I can't get straight answers when I said it earlier. And so to have a mother who's supposed to be like this, like the, the, the fruit, you know, like the tree of, of information, I don't know what's real and what's not. And I, I took that because I think that each of us, we tend to be very much like or the opposite of what we are around, you know, our circumstances, because we get that contrast. So for me, I was like, oh, I don't want to be that. I don't want to make people feel like that. I don't want to make pe people feel uncertain around me, you know? And so I became like hyper honest, but not in a malicious way too, because some people use that as like a right to just say crazy stuff to people. So it's not like that. If I think your shirt's ugly or whatever, I'm not going to be like, you know what? That shirt's ugly. So not you know, radical I'm just gonna be honesty. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's not like that, you know? It's just like, mm -hmm. okay, that's his thing, you know? Right. So. So I know you got involved in sports when you were in school. Did, were you always disciplined or do you, do you find that sports is what caused you to become disciplined so that you were able to be self-motivated and do all the coursework and, you know, all that so you can graduate on time? Like, where did that come from? That's a great question. It really comes from my grandparents mm -hmm. in that early setting and having the routine and the ritual and, and wanting to have that level of certainty and consistency and to control the things you can control, you know? So I definitely carry that with me. I was very self-sufficient and independent, even when I moved with my mother and just managing myself. Like literally my mom says, said it for years. Like, I don't have to worry about him. I don't have to worry about Sean. So I, it, that's really where the imprint came from. And then as far as sports, you know, it just helped me in that. Because I remember prior to my freshman year of football, I don't know how many kids were out there like training. You know, I'm in eighth grade out there running miles, you know, running to uh, sometimes I run to the pizza place, to be honest, you know, but I was out there running, training, lifting weights and doing all of this stuff in preparation where I'm, I would imagine 99 percent of the other kids weren't thinking like that. So, yeah, it's, I think it's really just something that was instilled early on with my grandparents. What was your life aspiration at the time? What did you see yourself becoming? I wanted to play football. I mm -hmm. mean, or, or run track, just that, that was the juice. And plus that was the only avenue I could see myself succeeding, you know, because that's the only example I had around me is people who kind of make it out the hood through athletics or through, through music, you know? And I really had this acclimation towards sports you know, like little fun. I scored our first, very first freshman 
football touchdown, you know, jumped over a guy, you know, he was kind of low to the ground, but still, you know what I mean? And just kind of carrying that into competition. And, but then of course, you know, the story of my body breaking down later, but that was really the, the aspiration for me was to play sport Mm -hmm. and life had other plans for me though. And because of that, I did have other imprints and the first college I went to Lindenwood university, I decided to go pre-med just because of the Cosby show, you know, just because of seeing, you know, a doctor and a lawyer on TV is just like, I should be that. I want to have a, a nice family and, you know, so that's why, you know, I don't, I didn't know any doctors. I didn't know anybody who was a doctor or had any aspirations to, to do that. And the crazy part was I hated science. Like I, I detested it. I, I would have nightmares, like bad dreams about being in biology class and for a long time, actually. And that, and then eventually I shifted my coursework over because I hated science so much uh, to marketing based off of another movie, you know, just another imprint from TV from seeing Eddie Murphy and Boomerang, you know, mm-hmm. he was in advertising. And I was like, oh man, it's so dope. You know, I could do that. And so those were my examples was just through the television, you know, because I didn't really know anybody in my life who was successful. So just to fill in the gap, you broke your hip at 15. No one knew why. No one asked you why you broke your hip. And when did you find out it was related to lifestyle? Mm. Was that in college? Yeah. I mean, that was after a a pretty long time span. So I was 15. I was at track practice and Mm. there was no trauma. Nobody hit me. I didn't fall. I was just running. I was just doing- And you were fast. You ran a a 4.5, 40-yard dash. Yeah. At 15. I was just 15 15 when I did that. Yeah. So man, like everything was looking really good for me, but I was coming off the curve into the straightaway and the iliac crest, you know, tip of my hip just broke, just broke off. And, you know, you go into the, to the doctor, you know, and the physical therapist and all that, and they take the x-rays and they're just like, you know, this is like a freak thing. You know, we have no idea what happened, but we'll get you better. Here's some insects, stay off the leg you know, here's some ultrasound treatment, but nobody asked how did a kid break his hip running? And it's incredibly rare. Like that just doesn't happen. And fast forward, it was until five years later, I got diagnosed with degenerative disc disease and bone disease. So my bone density was incredibly low. And I asked my physician at the time, these words that I'll never forget because I had no grounds to ask him this question. I had no idea it mattered. And I asked him, does, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? And he looked at me like I was from another planet. You know, he said, <laughs> this has nothing to do with what you're eating. This just happens. I'm so sorry, son, that happened to you. We're going to get you some medicine to manage the pain. And sent me on my way. And he told me that I had an incurable spinal disease yeah. at 20. So my aspirations of competition were massively vanquished. Right. And the reason that I went in was I was having this just like a nuisance of a leg pain. It kind of felt like maybe I pulled a hamstring or something. It's just not, I don't know. But I went from that moment to when he he gave me this diagnosis to within six weeks, chronic debilitating pain. And later I, of course, uncovered that this was a nocebo effect. You know, placebos in our minds are remarkably powerful. This is a big part of the conversation of health that is not discussed enough, but it is, is, is really pushing its way into popular culture. There's entire fields of 
psychoneuroendocrinology, psychoneuroimmunology, epigenetics, that understand the basis of what's controlling what's happening with our body is our thoughts. Your brain is controlling so much of what your biology is doing. It's a very powerful pharmaceutical production facility, right? The most powerful pharmacy in the world is the human mind. This nocebo effect, when he told me this is incurable, my cells, like my body just accepted like, man, I'm sick. I'm a very sick person. And I had the little nuisance of a pain for like two months, you know, it just kept, it was just like a little, like, man, I should go get checked out. And I had no idea why he wanted me to take an MRI of my spine because I was so disconnected from how all this stuff worked. Getting that diagnosis was obviously a low point in my life. It was very, ah, it was tough. It really, really took me down. It really tested so much. Were you going to university hospitals or did you have health insurance? Like, why did you go to that doctor versus any other doctor? It's a great question, man. It was the company doctor. I also had a daughter at this point, my daughter. And so I had my job, man. I was working at a casino and going <laughs> okay. to school full time okay. as well. How many hours a week were you putting in at the casino? Probably around like 32 hours. Mm-hmm. At the casino, you know, hard count department. So basically it's like low key prison, you know, they, they lock you into a vault and you can't mm-hmm. get out until you call security, come, you know, wind you out, no pockets, jumpsuit, all that, man. It was, it was crazy, but it was a nice income source for somebody who doesn't have a degree and all the conventional things that I thought I needed. So that's, that's the company. I went to see the company doctor and yeah, but I also went in which I highly recommend everybody, if you ever get a diagnosis of anything that's insubstantial like this, where you're going to make some life-altering decisions, always get a second and or third opinion. And I did, unfortunately, it was the same bill of goods, just because one of the things that folks don't really realize today is that our system of medicine, this is some incredibly gifted and bright people, obviously. And the vast majority of them get into the field to save lives, to help people. Yet some people are very shocked to hear the statistics on the rate of success of our conventional medical system. You know, the numbers, the basic numbers of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, obesity, everything is continuing to skyrocket every single year. It's astronomical. The numbers are astronomical. And our conventional medical system has not even made a slight dent in it because it continues to treat these things through a pharmaceutical lens. And that's what I saw when I first went to school. You know, the upperclassmen, we're taught pharmacology. If this issue, then prescribe this medication, you know, high blood pressure, hypertension, you know, here's lisinopril, put them on a statin for diabetes, give them metformin. Maybe we might have to use some insulin, tie that in here, but it's basically that, and I was just talking with a really good friend. And the crazy thing is now today, you know, with doing a, a, a lecture, a guest lecture for a neuro, the neuroscience class at NYU in a couple of days. But some of the top physicians in the world, like the most, the iconic ones listen to my show, you know, which is freaking <laughs> crazy. And this individual is the foremost gastroenterologist in the world right now. Like he's the guy, the gut MD. He shared with me that, this guy, he was in school in his traditional conventional education for 16 years of training. Ah, what? 
so many hours, so many hours. And he shared with me that he had two weeks of nutrition training. And he is a physician who specializes in the organs related to digestion. The stuff that you're digesting, you don't know anything about it. And even the nutrition training, the two weeks out of 16 years, he said was very like rote, like, here's what you do if somebody has a very rare B9 deficiency kind of thing. No training in food and nutrition, this very stuff that makes up the gastrointestinal tract, the very stuff that feeds the microbiome, the very stuff that makes your brain. If you're a heart surgeon or you're somebody who specializes in heart disease and cardiac stuff, they get almost no training in food and your food literally makes up your heart. It makes what it's what your heart is made of, you know? So it's very interesting situation. And I just want to share this little nugget because folks don't often realize because we're just in it, we're just in the system, in the conditions. We don't see that, wait, this isn't working. There's something wrong here. Even before that point, I mean, you may, you've made this point several times is when you're growing up in certain food deserts and certain neighborhoods, even if you came across that information, you're not going to go take your only $20 that you have to feed your three kids and go to Whole Foods and spend that $20 on some organic broccoli. You know, you're going to go to McDonald's and you're going to feed your full family and have some money left over. And so at the time when you were going through your health journey or getting these diagnoses, you were eating Jack in the Box, you were eating McDonald's, you were eating fast food. In fact, you and I, have that in common. We both grew up eating fast food. I would eat fast food probably 10 times a week. Yeah. And then when I wasn't eating fast food, I was eating TV dinners, you know, mm-hmm. or my mom was making stuff out of a box. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you could count the number of times your family sat down to have a meal together. And the same was true for me. We would get our TV dinners, put them in the microwave, go sit in front of the television, and eat food and watch TV. So that was just a lifestyle. Our main priorities were getting full and how does it taste? Yeah. And then maybe cost, right? And that yep. was it. Nutrition was not was not a consideration. So I'm I'm wondering at what point for you did nutrition become a consideration? Both of our backgrounds are very similar. I ate fast food probably on average at least once a day. Mm-hmm. And it was just normal. I didn't know that there was a difference to be real. I didn't know. It was just stuff that you eat, you know, and for us, you know, we grew up in a culture where fitness is considered health. And so I was just like, if I could work out, you know, I could eat whatever I want kind of thing. Not understanding that I'm making my body out of these foods. And I just want to circle back really quick before I answer that question. You mentioned a great example that I talk about in Eat Smarter is, is understanding there's a much bigger issue here. We tend to think about food in terms of weight loss. For most folks, most think about food. But in reality, food is such a governing force in so many decisions and so many aspects of our lives. And we talk about how food affects our levels of empathy, how food affects our cognitive performance, and et cetera. But one of the most fascinating data points is how simply eating together as a family, and one of the studies I cited in the book was from Harvard researchers, which again, this should be front page news, found that simply sitting down for a meal with your family and your kids three to four times a week leads to a dramatic increase in the consumption of fruits and vegetables and a dramatic decrease in the consumption of processed food and soda. Just the culture of eating together just encourages certain changes. It's not always the case, but this is something to think about. 
And some of the studies that are in the book are actually analyzing low-income families and seeing the same kind of pattern of behavior if they sit down and eat together more often. For myself personally, this kind of revelation took place after two years of dealing with this chronic disease. And just, man, it was terrible. Every time I would stand up from sitting or laying down, I get this sharp sciatic pain shoot down my leg and it physically made me jerk. Like it was just, it was scary. Like I had to have that pain in order to have a normal gait, like my walking stride. So I would get up and I was like taking little steps, just waiting for it to happen. And then boom, it would happen. Then I can walk. And so I relented to just not walk so much of my life. I just stayed sitting down on my college apartment, crappy couch and playing video games. You know, and I went from a full credit load in school. And of course, I wasn't working anymore now to just three credits, which is one class barely hanging on. But two years after that, I gained a lot of weight, by the way, of course, eating this, what I call the tough diet, typical university food and not (laughs) moving at all. Uh, I turned on this, my fat genes, you know, like most of my family, pretty much everybody in my family was obese, overweight or obese. And I was the skinny kid, but I had that gene, you know, my fat gene kicked on. Um, By the way, it's FTO gene is one of the primary, but anyway, so that gene got activated. And so I, I put on this weight and it, of course, what is that going to do to the condition? It's going to make it worse because now I'm carrying out extra weight on my frame. And it really all changed when I went to see the, got the final doctor that I went to gave me the same prognosis. There's nothing you can do. I'm sorry. Here's some more medication. Here's some more Celebrex, which was causing restless leg syndrome for me, which I, it didn't have a name yet, but I'm just, I go to bed at night. It's like, why the hell are my legs trying to go for a walk? Like what's going on? But now there's a drug for that too. You know? So anyways, I got that last prognosis and I was sitting on my bed that night holding my pill bottle because I had to, I had to take drugs just to go to sleep. You know, the pain was so bad. It would wake me up at night. And ironically, you know, going back to the very beginning, my grandmother just came rushing into my mind. She might've called me that day or the day before. And I always, I always brushing her off because she'd be like, you know, how's everything going? And I'm just like, I'm fine, grandma. Yeah. As you do when you're 19, 20 years old, you brush your grandma off. That's it. I got this. I got mm-hmm. this. There's nothing you could do for me. I'm a man. I got this. But I, I did not have it. I mm-hmm. didn't have it, clearly. And she really did. She knew it. You know, her heart knew it. And as I was sitting there and after just kind of mulling over, because I had this chronic question going over in my mind all the time, why me? Why me? Why does this have to happen to me? Why won't anybody help me? Chronically, just in my mind all the time. And these questions, there's something the brain does. It's an instinctive reflex. It's called instinctive elaboration is the term. And so any question you pose your brain, it's constant, your brain basically runs on questions, whether we're aware of it or not. And it's constantly using data. It kind of really focuses in your reticular activating system, reticular cortex in the brain to filter out because there's billions and billions and billions and trillions of bits of data coming in to focus your attention based on what you're curious about. And this is a life or death kind of thing we've evolved with. So my chronic questions I'm asking myself to look for in my environment is why does my life suck so bad? And so I'm looking for more things to affirm that. Little did I know. But in that moment that night 
was the first time I shifted to a different question. And after I found out nobody is willing to help me, that aggression that had been there my entire life that I had just like pushed down and shut off, that aggression came out. And now it was in a, a in, it directed at something positive, which was I decided in that moment, and I asked the question, what is it that I need to do to get better? Nobody's going to help me. Nobody wants to help me. Everybody I see is telling me the same thing. I, I'm not standing for this. I remember asking, what, what do I need to do to get healthy? And this is very different from when I went to school pre-med when all we did was focus on disease. We didn't focus on what it, what it takes to create a healthy, sovereign human being. Really, health was just a lack of having a, a diagnosis. But I started to become obsessed with what makes a healthy human being. And I asked this question, okay, my bones are degenerating. What are my bones actually made of? Those questions led me down paths of, of research and discovery. You know, it was just a really powerful launching pad because I realized in that moment, my grandmother, who had been kind of pestering me, that's a term she would use, she was pestering me to find out, you know, what was going on. And I realized that I had been giving my power away. The one thing my grandmother instilled in me that I never realized until that moment was that I was going to do something incredible with my life. She always made me believe that, that I was here to do something special and that I was going to do something great. And here I was, I'd given my power away. And in that moment, I took my power back. Yeah, I was just going to ask you before you, you went into that story, who is your chaga at that time in your life? And it sounds like your grandmother has been that sort of mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi figure for you. Did you already have a lot of experience with research or was this journey, this health journey, something that inspired you to look deeper than the surface when it came to these kinds of questions you're asking yourself at this point? This is so great because nobody asked me this stuff. These are <laughs> things that I even think about today, uh -huh. you know, like, and so I'm going to share something. I've never shared this before. Listen. Okay. So I mentioned, I mentioned that when I got kicked out of high school, you know, I was student advisory committee. I was in inroads, which is a massive deal. It was the first year of this program to get college credit, uh, scholar athlete, all of this stuff, all the accolades. I was a teenage health consultant. I was just chosen out of the school to like go to different classes and talk about health, even though I knew nothing about what, was, or what health was. I was able to do all that. And I honestly did not try. All right. Mm. I didn't I didn't try very much at all. Like I would literally do stuff last minute all the time. I did all my work on the bus because I was in a desegregation bus program. So he's on the bus for like an hour a day. But most of the time on the bus, I was also messing around, you know, so I was actually investing so little of my capacity to learn because it wasn't interesting to me. I knew how to play that game in the system, which was rote memorization. And that's it. So I was able to you know, when I got kicked out of, out of high school, I had a 3.8 GPA, not even trying. But I also have this ability to find answers. The reason I could do so little is because I could find the answer. And so I always, I did have this within me. And so now I'm directing it at something that I'm actually very interested in and passionate about. So having that ability to find answers and to ask questions, I became obsessed. I became absolutely obsessed and deeply in love with health. 
And I wanted to know everything that I could about the human body because it became this thing that was so interesting to me. And also seeing the results in my life, like actually seeing my health change and my body change. And, you know, long story short, with that, even with that condition, within six weeks, I had lost like 20 pounds, which is not typical, by the way. But most importantly, I was out of pain, this debilitating chronic pain, six weeks after making a decision to get well and changing the way that I was eating, changing my movement practices. And most importantly for myself at the time, which I didn't know, being able to sleep. Your body can't heal unless it's sleeping. So once I started to sleep well, man, like I got better so fast until, you know, about nine months later, I finally got a scan done and completely reversed the condition. My disc that had become like little thin sliced pieces of crispy bacon, it looked like, like you couldn't see the light through. And my physician told me I had the spine of an 80 year old man. Now, like I could see the light shining through my disc. My two uh, herniated discs had retracted and moved back into their, the right place. And man, I just felt really good. And that was the inception as well of wanting to share this, not because I had the idea to, but because somebody saw me on campus and they were like, what did you do? Can you help me do the same thing? I was like, absolutely. And so I was just going to work with them and help them to get where they wanted to go. But then they asked me, how much should I pay you? I literally hadn't, it blew my mind. It was like time froze. Like, you're going to pay me for something that I want to do? I didn't know life could work like that. And so that was the inception, the beginning of this career. 19 years later, you know, having impacted the lives of millions, millions of people, man, it really even changed culture, you know, and it's just, it's incredible, man. I'm just, it all started from that very, very dark moment and finding some light. I do want to go back and just talk a little bit about what was going on in the background, because, you know, you're in St. Louis. You're in school not far from Ferguson. You're going to this casino and working and everything. You're getting stopped a lot by the police. And you have a friend, Ronnie Lee, whose father was murdered by cops that you met in school. And yeah. he was he seemed to be on a on a very specific mission as well. Talk a little bit about what was going on in the background while you were going through your health journey and raising your daughter and doing all these other things. When I was in college, I lived in Ferguson, Missouri, and it's become very, the name is on a lot of people's, in their lexicon today. So yeah, just even getting to school each day and just to be 1000%, every day I thought about how can I not get pulled over? How can I take a route to avoid the police? I never thought about it or even talked about it until recently because it just, it was just, just how it was, you know, it was just a normal state of affairs. I got pulled over so many times and man, they knew me like at the the fine place, you know, paying the fines. They knew me, you know, a couple of the ladies would like, you know, oh, here comes Sean, you know, look like little kind of hit on me a little bit. I was a regular, you know, and, you know, nine times out of 10, I didn't do anything wrong. But that, let me say eight times out of 10, because those two out of 10 times was like expired tags, which it was so hard to pay to get my tags because I kept paying fines. And I had to pay warrants and I had to try to pay to get my license renewed because they kept pulling me over. And it's just my word against them. You know, they could say whatever they want. Not to say again that all police officers operate in that, but we know that Department of Justice came out with this big document showing these startling rates of discrimination in Ferguson by the Ferguson Police Department. And so I lived that experience. And then 
getting to school and doing all the school stuff. And then same thing, finding, let me find a creative way to get back to my apartment. And so I'm dealing with that, but also, yeah, I meet my friend Ronnie and man, like we're still really good friends. He actually texted me, I think it was yesterday and he's on a basketball team, but he overcame tremendous odds as well. And I didn't really know him like that then. And his father was killed by a police officer. You know, there's no witnesses. There's no, you know, he just knew his father as being a good, a good dad. And after that, you know, his same thing, his family, his mother fell victim to drugs, you know? And so like, what do you do when you're a child and you have to try to manage these circumstances? And he was able to today, I mean, he is an incredible, thoughtful father for his son. He's been training his son. His son is a great basketball player now, but also Ronnie's a teacher and he teaches in inner city. And he always goes above and beyond for these children because he knows the conditions that they're in. And he also knows what's possible, you know? So uh, one of the things that we did before I moved from St. Louis was we took his seventh and eighth grade students and we rented out a movie theater. This was when Black Panther first come out and we rented out a theater for all the kids, many of whom wouldn't have been able to get a chance to go to the movie theater to see the movie. And, you know, we got everybody popcorn and, you know, just it was such a powerful experience for them to see people that look like them on screen and doing this thing that we had never seen before. It was just a really incredible moment. But the most remarkable thing for me is this folder of the messages that the kids sent me. It's just, man, it's, it's powerful. And for them to also, I talked with the kids too. I did like a 10 minute talk and just, I was able to do that on the strength of like helping people, you know, writing books. We don't really see examples like that. Like we see just what's on TV. Now we got influencers. Like you want to be influencers. You know, you got to show your ass to be able to, you know, build a brand or you have to still continue to, you know, get into the to the drug game or the music game or be an athlete, but just give them another option, show them what's possible, you know, that we could do this in a in an ethical, helpful way and find a great level of success. Because that's what really what we need at the end of the day is just exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, we just need exposure. And somebody helped me with that early on because when I, again, when you start to ask these questions, you start to find things in your environment. I knew this woman for probably at least three years at this point. And she, her and I have been talking for a long time, on and off, you know. And then suddenly it occurs for both of us, but I didn't know it at the time. I really didn't get it. But she was a chiropractor. And she took me to Wild Oats, which Whole Food has you know, since bought all of them up. But I didn't know that that existed. And she'd known this. She'd been in that realm for so long. You know, she was older, but it was there and available this whole time. But just to be clear, this was not near me. There's no Whole Foods near me. I'm talking like 30 minutes to get to the nearest one. You know, this mm-hmm. is not in my environment. There's no gyms in my environment. There's nothing conducive to health. When you go outside my apartment door in Ferguson, immediately, liquor store, immediately. On this side, if you go this way, the first thing you come up to is a Rally's, Popeye's. If you go the other way, Lee's Chicken, Papa John's, Domino's. Chinese food, which in the hood is different Chinese food, all right? That's the bulletproof glass Chinese food, all right? And it's tasty, but, you know, the owners don't eat that. But then there's Steak and Shake, if you got a little extra money right there, Jack in the Box, Krispy Kreme's right there, Burger King, Wendy's, another Chinese food restaurant. That's it. 
that's the conditions that I'm in. So what am I going to do? I, that's, I see that every day. But suddenly I've been introduced to this entire world and they had this book in the store. It was like nutritional prescription. I believe it was like some biblical nutritional advice text for like, if you have this issue, here's some things that have this clinical evidence, you know? So I'm reading through, I'm looking at like stuff for the spine and I'm just, I'm, I'm discovering there's all of this stuff that I didn't know existed. And it's because of exposure and it's always there. It's always available. We just have to realize it. And you mentioned that your college nutrition professor was obese. So now you're seeing that there's another connection there between diet and you want to lose weight. You want to get back into shape. You want to get healthy. You want to restore your spine. And you, you describe it as a scientific process, right? And you talk about exercise, you talk about diet, you talk about sleep. Is that it? Just exercise, diet, sleep? Or was there a specific regiment that you had yourself on? And if so, where did you get that from? What we tend to do when we're unaware is, you know, we do what we know, you know, we do what we know. And so my lowest hanging fruit was movement and exercise. I was well-versed in that language from one lane because of practice and coaches, you know, so, but I had relented to do nothing. And the worst thing that you can do is to do nothing. Of course, if you were, if you're experiencing an acute injury and all that inflammation, you know, if you hurt your back, you don't want to go and deadlift 400 pounds, but do something because not only will my spine atrophy in my bones, but now everything else, every other cell in my body is going to start to atrophy and break down because I'm not using it. Your body really does work on a use it or lose it basis. We're hardwired. Our DNA expects us to move and to continue on our species, like that's really what it's geared for. So if you're not doing that, if you're not moving your body, life is like everything in your DNA is like, just let me recycle this full. Just break them down to base nutrients and recycle them. You know, so when I started to move, that was step one. But I came across this really interesting study and it was on racehorses. And they found that they were trying to, because this is like a billion dollar industry, super weird. Uh, shout out to anybody. Sorry if you are super into racehorse. No disrespect. <laughs> but if a racehorse breaks its leg, you can lose tens of millions of dollars. So they did a study to try to increase the bone density of the horses. And so they gave them nutrients, supplements that increase bone density. And they found that that did increase the bone density of the horses, but they had a versus a control. But they had another study group that they gave them these nutrients and walk the horses. And they had an even greater, far greater increase in their bone density. That's what exercise and movement really is. It's about assimilation and also elimination. You know, the word exercise, very close to the word exorcise, mm. you know, so it's kind of like getting rid of things that shouldn't be there, you know? So that's the primary way that, way that our lymphatic system moves. So movement plus these nutrients now that I'm aware of and that I'm bringing into my body for the first phase though, I became a natural pill popper. I'm like, Oh, I need chromium. I need magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids. So I'm just like taking all of these pills. And for, fortunately, very quickly, I realized that food has an, a dynamic intelligence that these synthetic or not synthetic, but even isolated chemicals and nutrients have because of the biopotentiators, you know, the cofactors that are in the foods. And so I really start to focus on what foods have those things. And so that, that was with the first two parts. And then the sleep part was very unconscious. I didn't realize that this was happening, but there were things that I was doing during the day 
that were helping me to sleep better at night. And all of that data actually manifested in my book, Sleep Smarter, but I didn't realize it because when you're sleeping well, you don't even think about it. Like, so when I was working with patients that were coming in my office for that decade, I was doing the clinical practice. I never thought about their sleep until like years later, years mm-hmm. later, because I was sleeping good. So I just didn't think about it. And when people started to tell me, when I started to ask a question, when we had, you know, upwards of 79, 80% reversal rate for type two diabetes, you know, mm-hmm. folks that are coming in on metformin and on insulin and their blood sugar, you know, 300 blood sugar, just seeing this great success. But what would bother me is the 20% of people who wouldn't get the results. When I finally start to ask them about other areas of their life, because food, this is a tr- major truth I want everybody to walk away with, is that there are many paths to the goal. Mm. There are many paths. All right. It's not just going to be one thing for many people. For me, my bridge into health was through food. That was my bridge. And so I'm just like so hyper-focused on that. Food is everything. Food matters more than everything. And yet people have their nutrition dialed in. They're exercising maybe sometimes too much, and they're not getting the results. Once we got their sleep dialed in, finally their blood sugar normalized. Finally, the weight came off. And that inspired me to look into the data and see like, what the hell is going on here? And that shocked me. It absolutely blew my mind because just one little tiny little nugget, fun fact, when I was in my conventional university, I was taught that melatonin was produced in your pineal gland, in your brain. End of story. Next, like flip the page. In actuality, there's over 400 times more melatonin located in your gut, in your belly Mm. right now than in your brain. Mm. And what you eat has a massive impact on the production and the synthesis of melatonin. So all these things start to go hand in hand with the nutrition and sleep and it all comes together. But for some folks, their bridge is going to be through self-development. Their bridge is going to be through meditation. Their bridge is going to be through, you know, movement. It's many different bridges. Food was a thing for me. And that's why, you know, I really invested myself in becoming a nutritionist and shifting all my coursework. But by the way, miseducation of Lauren Hill slash Sean Stevenson in university nutrition classes, because food is not just food, it's information. Mm-hmm. Food is not just food, it's information. And so it started to change me from the inside out. It made it easier to think the thoughts I wanted to think. It made it easier for me to take the actions that I wanted to take. It was, it was supportive. And I really clicked me and food became besties. If I could say that. It sounds like you also became quite the expert on reading clinical studies at that time. And you're now known as a person who can make a very complex study make sense. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that skill? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that this was really honed in teaching classes, you know, Mm. and, um, you know, having workshops and things like that. And understanding that sometimes the greatest opportunity or connective tissue with learning is joy and fun. So often we try to punish ourselves into something. We try to punish ourselves into health. We try to punish ourselves into learning. But what if I can make this joyful? What if I can make this fun? What if I can make this so that you laugh at how silly you've been acting rolling up to McDonald's, you know, like Ronald McDonald is just like, you know, I don't know, your pimp or something. I don't know. But I would just find these ways to, for, for folks to be like, of course, that's silly. Why? What? 
Let me do this. I have other an example. Thing. You talked about muffins and how muffins is basically you eating cake in the mornings. Like, would you eat cake? Would you wake up <laughs> out of your sleep and go cut a slice of piece of cake? Right. That, Nobody thinks if you, if, if you went to see your doctor and you're like, I eat cake for breakfast, doc, <laughs> they would think that that's a problem. When in reality, they probably ate cake for breakfast too. But we change it in our minds, you know, because a cake is shaped. It's you know, a muffin. Yeah, it's a, it's a little muffin. It's shaped Blueberry muffin. Yeah, it's shaped differently. Oh, my. But also pancakes, you know. Pancakes. Oh, they're flat. So oh, suddenly they're not cake anymore, even though we can stack <laughs> them up and they still, you know what I mean? And let me pour a cup of this, like, liquid sugar from that maple tree on it, you know. It's just... These are the paradigms. That, not to say that you can't have pancakes, by the way, or muffins. All of these right. things are available. It's just us having a level of just a meta perspective. Like, what are we doing here? And is this normal? Is this getting me to the goal that I want to get to? Yeah. So you started your Advanced Integrative Health Alliance at that time. What was that like? And that sounds very, very official. <laughs> was that just you renting out a room somewhere? Like, what, what was that? When you started, <laughs> it did. Yeah, it started at I had this little like back room. There was like a massage therapist there, and there was like a, 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 I think it was like a yoga studio there. And I had my little like when you say corner office, I'm talking about it was the crack of the building. It was like a little corner, you know, had a door, and so yeah, that's where it started, you know. And then eventually, I had a really nice office in the business district in, in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, which was really How did cool. you get clients initially? I know you had the one person who said, can you show me how to do it? But beyond that, what was your strategy for getting clients? Yeah. So that even in that, that was when I became a personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach. Uh, that was the first, because it was the lowest hanging fruit. That's what I knew. And even within that, man, it's just be, if you're good at what you do, but not just that, because a lot of people could teach somebody how to do a push-up or a plank or whatever. It's really the accountability and the support and just finding that inner thing, that inner strength for people, helping them to find it for themselves and having the goal for people to hire you to fire you, you know, because they got it. And so I guess I had that thread in me, but as far as like clients coming in, really word, word of mouth was major, but it got to a point where I couldn't help everybody. It's too many people. It was just so mm. much. That's when I realized, like, I need to write this down, you know, or I need to record this or something. And this, these are the inception points of, like, doing these big speaking events and then writing books and podcasts was from that, of that necessity of, like, more people need to know this. What were the themes where most people were coming in with? I'm sure there were a lot of uh, hmm. patterns and similarities. Oh, uh, man, I'm so glad that you asked this. Again, I don't talk about this often, but because of my experience, I was told that I had an incurable condition. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about that. And to go from that place of such darkness and being told that you have something in, in, that's incurable to no longer having that thing, it creates a level of certainty and power that you can't really put into words. And mm -hmm. so even in the texture of my communication and my voice and my passion, people could see it in my eyes. I attracted a lot of people who've been told the same thing, you know, that have cancer, that have diabetes, that have, you name it. I, we work with so many crazy, even like Rocky Mountain Fever, like all kinds of like weird, crazy, like little known stuff. And when you have that instilled in you, that that is not the final say about you, that there is so much more 
that nobody is telling you about. And the number one thing that I did is that when, when folks would come in, you know, of course they had the intake form and all that stuff. I would just walk them through and reverse engineer the, the disease. Like nobody, no, they not even remotely close to actually understanding the thing that's happening in their body. So if somebody comes in with type two diabetes, I'm like, I put it up on the screen, I draw it and walk them through. Okay. So these are the beta cells in your pancreas, you know, and then I like make some kind of analogy and like get them like happy and their eyes are glowing, you know, because they're like, oh, wait, what? That's what did that? And so then they feel empowered. It's just like, now I can actually manage this thing. I can do something about it because it's no longer a mystery. Once that inception point happened of giving people that, that kind of template that there's so much more they can do, this automatically puts me at odds with how things are running, which I don't even realize. And the most beautiful part, the grace in my life has been, I've done things in such a way that I'm not really threatening to the system that is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's become very complimentary. And now, like I said, so many top physicians and nurse practitioners in the world are like listening to the Model Health Show and getting that and sharing with their patients. There's something there that I don't want to gloss over because I think it's it's probably one of the most important things about your impact in this space. And that is what I've read your motto was at the time. It was the Einstein quote. If you can't explain it simply, then you don't know it well enough. And in order to truly be the hope guy for regular people, you have to be able to explain things simply, which means you have to understand it inside and out. And so I'm curious how much of your process was somebody comes in with the Rocky Mountain thing and you, you, what do you do? You go to the computer, you try to break it all down, you find the patterns, like how does it, how does it work so that you can make it simple for them and, and reverse engineer it? That's precisely it. It really boils down to the questions that you're asking, because we have infinite data at our fingertips now. You know, so if you're looking at just how bad things are, that's all you're going to see, mm-hmm. you know, but I guarantee you're going to find thousands of cases of people who ha- have had, quote, spontaneous remission or who've reversed their conditions, but you just don't hear their stories. And for me, I, I didn't start off this way because I think that especially when you are in a space that has so much prestige as health, you tend to be looped into this very scholarly approach, speaking like you're such an academic, you know? So I was beginning like that. I was talking mm-hmm. and just like, here's how smart I am, you know? And like, listen to this and here's this thing, here's this thing. And that's the way I was writing, even in my initial like articles and things like that versus actually doing something that's helpful, you know? So when you're reading these peer reviews, I've read literally over 1000 peer reviewed studies in the last 12 month, months. And this is not like, adventurous, seductive reading. This isn't like a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code type novel. It can be very dry and painful to go through. You know, there's so much nonsense and there's so much trying to sound smart and speaking in this language of academia and not giving people any actual value and data points. Now, here's the thing. It's not written for people. It's not written for the people who need it. And this is one of the biggest takeaways from today. I want everybody to know this. On average, when we have a peer-reviewed, randomized controlled trial proving the efficacy of something, uh, a certain technique or food, 
We'll just say we, we find we have a randomized controlled, double blind placebo controlled randomized controlled trial. The gold standard, gold standard of study affirming that we'll say turmeric and curcumin, which is one of the active components in, in, in turmeric, has been found to have these anti-angiogenesis properties, meaning it can help to cut off the blood supply to cancer cells. This kind of intelligent selection, it's able to do this. We got a study proving that it works, very helpful. It takes about 17 years on average for it to go from proof in randomized controlled trials to being used in clinical practice. Mm. Do you know how many people are gonna die over that life, over that span of time? Mm. How many people could be helped? Not to say that this is some magical cure, but it can help, it can stack conditions. So to cut out the middleman and all the BS, somebody has to be there for people to go and look at the data and then let people know. Because we don't have that kind of time. Most of us don't have that kind of time. Mm -hmm. And the data exists. I'm telling you, all the things that our ancestors have brought forth, you know, with health and wellness and community and even psychology, all we're doing is using science to affirm the stuff that we know. You need to eat real food. You need to sleep. You need to have consistent movement in your life. You need to have community and connection and, and healthy relationships. We're just using science to affirm the things we know. And I'm really, really good at it. And that's the thing. It's just, it's a matter of taking that stuff. But, oh, here's a little, little hack to it. It's not intentional, but I, I have that same thread. I'm still obsessed. Even though it can be very dry and like unexcited reading, I can't tell you how many times I start flipping out. Like, it's like Christmas. It's like that food stamp Christmas. I find these things that's right there in the data. And it just blows my mind and my heart just like explodes because not only does this exist, but I'm alive right now to tell people and let people know this. And one of the things that's coming up for me right now, as I'm thinking about this, that I had one of those moments recently, I, I wanted to find out, is there any data affirming how food might affect how we relate to each other, how food might affect whether or not we have a tendency towards violence and the data existed. And there was an incredible study that was done. This was published in a peer reviewed journal, aggressive behavior. What a name for a journal. There's journals for everything, by the way, you name it, <laughs> right? aggressive behavior. And what was so fascinating about this study is that this was done with prison inmates. Now this automatically is going to conjure up thoughts in our mind about what they look like. What is, what is a prison inmate? What is their attitude, their lifestyle, their approach? their mentality. And they're going to have, a, of course, a tendency towards violence, you're going to think, a tendency towards pushing back against authority. All these different things are going to come up, negative traits. But here's what's so beautiful about a study like this, unfortunately beautiful, is that because they're in this controlled setting, it's very easy to monitor everything, unlike in the real world. So this is a ward study. This is a tracked ward study. And they wanted to find out if nutrition affected their proclivity towards offenses, all right, behavioral offenses. And so they gave a certain percentage of the inmates increased nutrition, you know, uh, vitamins and minerals that they needed, essential fatty acids that they needed for their brain function. And then they gave another group of the inmates placebos, all mm -hmm. right? At the end of the study, they compiled all the data and they found that there was about a 40% reduction in behavioral offenses for the inmates who got 
increased nutrition. For the inmates who received more and better nutrition, giving their bodies the nutrients that it needed, their behavioral offenses went down 40%. And here's the most shocking part. Their violent offenses went down about 35% versus the placebo. 35% reduction in violence simply by getting them some better nutrition. Now, this study is so shocking, it doesn't make sense. So some other researchers saw this study and they're like, this is so shocking, this doesn't make sense. And they repeated it in another prison. Almost the exact same results happen. Hmm. This is what's in Eat Smarter as well. So people- Yes, the chapter is called, it's called the love language. Is it the love language of eating or something like that? Yes, the food love languages. The food love languages, languages. yes. That's that's awesome. So it's That's looking really at how, how food affects our ability to have empathy, patience, mm-hmm. compassion, our proclivity towards violence. Food matters. It's what mm-hmm. we're literally making our heart out of. It's what we're making our brain out of. And this data exists. It's just that almost no one knows about it because it's very hard to, to find. But there are other people out there asking these questions. Once we know these things, right now we're living in a situation where, and you and I have both discussed this, Everybody is so polarized and so much infighting. There's not a lot of listening. There's not a lot of perspective taking and understanding. And at the same time, we are also the sickest nation in human history here in the United States with over 200 million people overweight or obese, about 135 million people being a type 2 diabetic or pre-diabetic, over 70% of the population on pharmaceutical drugs, over 115 million Americans are regularly sleep deprived. I can just keep going on and on. It makes no sense. Those numbers don't, 200 million doesn't even make sense. Let's say somebody out there listening to this has been diagnosed with an incurable whatever. They want to reclaim their health. You're no longer seeing clients personally. You have your model health show and all that. What's the first step? What what should they do? I've literally never shared this before either. What I'm about to say, it's just a, it's a small thing, but it's a beautiful thing. I receive so many messages each day. I can't possibly go through them all. But so many messages of folks who like, hey, Sean, I started listening to your show about a year ago. It's changed my life. You have no idea. You know, I've lost 50 pounds. I was able to get off my high blood pressure medication. One of the messages I see way more than you expect. And they'll say, and I started working in the health profession as well. Like I really have a passion for this. And so I started my own coaching practice or my own gym or whatever, man, when I was first doing this, you know, in St. Louis, Missouri, I would go do a talk in the same day. This is the same day this happened. I went and did a talk for a Jewish community center. And the same day I went and did a talk in East St. Louis at one of the most desolate streets on state street at a barbecue place that this woman had come to my, one of my workshops. And I had no idea. I didn't know she existed. I didn't know that she did this, but she went home that day and told her husband that we're going to turn this place into a health food store. In the middle of like, this doesn't happen. And so they did. They turned it into a health food store. And so I went and did a talk there in the same day. This is an inclusive thing. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different dynamics and ways to, to connect. But what I wanted to really articulate from that question is just by tuning yourself into what's real, tuning yourself into what's, what feels good is incredibly healing. Just put your earbuds in, push play, and let it start to work on you. Find ways to fall in love with 
learning, find ways to fall in love. Because I, I promise your natural state is you want to learn. Like we all have this built into our DNA. It's just to get mm -hmm. suppressed when we are constantly being bombarded with messages telling you to be still and just consume this entertainment. Mm. When we can use that same leverage point to make it edutainment, you become empowered because I promise you, everything that I know, you will know. By the end of that episode, when we do a masterclass on type 2 diabetes or we do a masterclass on depression, you are going to walk away knowing everything that I know and you're going to feel incredibly empowered. And that's what I love about your work, man. And that's why I wanted to have you on here because I feel like you are so generous in your sharing of this knowledge, this information. It's so empowering. It, the intent is to make people self-sufficient in addition to becoming their own, not just their own health advocate, but also helping other people, bringing up other, putting other people on to the empowering them to look after their own health. And I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on the Model Health Show. That started with the Sean Stevenson model. That was the first name of the sort of exercise, diet, sleep trifecta to reclaiming your health, right? And then that became the Model Health Show. And if anyone ever sees you, it's clear that you could be a model. <laughs> was that a pun or is that, what was the genesis of, of that? You know what's funny? I, I actually never thought about it in that context when it first started. It was just like, this is my model. And I was regularly going on the radio station in St. Louis mm -hmm. and doing like radio segments. And it was just kind of like these little model moments or, Sean, you know, Sean Stevenson's model for this or that. So that's really where it came from. What I really want to encourage people to do is you can use my model, of course, but I really want to get people to the place where they create their own model of health and wellness, because at the end of the day, and truly it is unique to each and every one of us. And like we talked about earlier, everybody's inroads to this is different, but to take somebody's model and to build on it, it's incredibly powerful. So the template is there, the insights, the tips, the tools, the strategy, the inspiration, you can use that model and then create your own from it. And I have one odd question. You, you, every time I see you, you have a baseball hat on. What, what, what is that about? You know what's so funny? Nobody ever asked me this either, but <laughs> my stepfather always wore a hat, okay. know, always wore his hat, his cap. And of course, I, I keep my head shaved like you, you know, but this is just my style, man. You know, this is just what I feel. It's your uniform. Head, you know? yeah. I'm an athlete. I'll every day, like even before we got on, you know, before I had a, a meeting prior, I turn my hat around. I'm throwing the weights around. I turn my hat back around and come again to the meeting and also one of the most remarkable things is I could do this. I could be the cookie cutter guy and it would be so much easier. I've done all the TV stuff, by the way, but it's been harder for me, but I've seen you on the news just, with your hat on and with your, uh, oh yeah. with your, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to do rag me. underneath the hat. It's kind of like the culture. You know what I, I mean? Like, please don't get it twisted. I don't have to look a certain way mm -hmm. for me to be excellent or for me to be an icon or for me to, be educated and powerful, you know? So all of these things are just these very intentional things I never talk about. But, you know, I know even through this process, you know, with the pandemic, you know, there's so much judgment going on. It's just risen to the surface. And I could be out there, I could put on a lab coat and chop it up and, you know, but I want to be real because I don't know how else to be, to be honest. You know what I mean? So I just want to be myself, be authentically me. And then I never have to hide. 
And this really goes back to when you asked me about my mom, man, you know, and that's so powerful about you and asking these questions. I just want to be myself. I want to do mm-hmm. the things that I feel good about so that I don't have any regret. Mm-hmm. I want to do the things that I feel good about so that I don't have to worry about not being congruent later and somebody finding out something about me because I'm not being authentic to who I am. So that's what I'm going to continue to do and continue to open doors and usher in opportunities, even though I don't even realize it for people who look like me, for people who talk like I do, like they can hear the little something in my voice to know where I'm from. And that's okay. This does not negate my ability to make an impact and my ability to love and to inspire. Yeah, man. And I was going to say that too. I was going to, this is about exposure, you know, cause there's an, there's a little Sean somewhere, you know, who's growing up, who's growing up now in the same way that you grew up with the violence and the drugs and all that. And, you know, seeing someone with the lab coat on television is completely disconnected from their reality, but seeing a guy like yourself, who's presenting themselves in a way that honors their roots and yet they're dropping these gems knowledge and, you know, and they're, and they're confident and they're well-spoken and all these things. It's like, that's the exposure that we need more of. And I think that that's a really wonderful example of how everybody should be more of themselves when they, especially when you start to get a little bit of success, you know, cause that's when people want to start to conform to what they think Ooh, yeah. that's supposed to look like. And, and the real win is, is to be yourself unapologetically and to be thorough at the same time. So yeah. I always end these episodes asking what your current working definition for success is right now. Very simply, for me, health is success. Being healthy is success. Having relationships that inspire and encourage you and that are authentic, you know, just like you being authentic, your relationships being authentic. And success is also finding joy in your work. Mm. Even if it's not the job you would ideally want, but finding joy in it. Because I think that thread of that connection from joy to what we do with our hands I think it's magic because I think doing that, you you will eventually find your hands in the thing that is truly your dharma, you know, the thing that you was born were born for. But I think so oftentimes we think that if I once I just get this other job I want, then I'm gonna really show up, you know, I'm really gonna kill it. But right now you're demonstrating to the universe the type of person that you are, you know, and how we mm-hmm. do anything. It's how we do everything, you know, and I'm a big believer in that. And so really finding joy in the thing that you are doing, investing your life energy. And I'm, I use work is specifically because we use so much of our life span invested in work. So finding joy in that, healthy relationships, authentic relationships, and health. Those are the things that equal success to me. I love it. We're at the end of the tunnel, brother. I just want to bring it back around to the Thundercats <laughs> and specifically to Lion-O, you know, because you you kind of called it in the very beginning where you said it actually it, that's an archetype for who you've become as a person in your work. The kind of boy who's who's now the man, but still has access to that sort of childlike wonder and innocence inside. And what I read from that now after hearing more of your story 
is the embodiment of the manhood, which is to take responsibility for your life, you know, fully. And that's really the only way you're going to be able to initiate any kind of real transformation is if the problem that you're facing is in the room with you, then the solution is also in the room with you. If the problem is outside somewhere in what that doctor said or what this person thought thinks or what this situation or circumstance was when I was a kid, then that's where the solution is, is you got to go and try to control all of those uncontrollable variables. And, uh, and I think your life is, is exemplifies the importance of taking ownership and stepping into that self-leadership and making it simple. And I think we can't underestimate the, that aspect of keeping it as simple as possible, taking baby steps and, and all of those things. So grateful for you, man. And I want to acknowledge you for being one of my inspirations. I will talk about how we met in the intro of this, but I'm just glad we crossed paths when we did and we've had a chance to kind of collaborate on a couple things. And hopefully this is just the beginning of a very, very long and fruitful relationship. Awesome, man. I feel the same way, man. You're such a a light in my life and so many other people, man. So it's an honor, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sean Stevenson. As I mentioned, Sean's new book, Eat Smarter, is available now. And one of the things that I really loved about that book is how much of his personal story he uses to demonstrate the principles of smarter eating. And I really think you're going to enjoy it as well. In the meantime, if you want to hear more stories like Sean's, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and poke around a little bit in the archive. You're going to discover many other episodes with inspiring people who, like Sean, had to overcome all kinds of odds in an effort to find their path to helping others. I'd also appreciate it tremendously if you can take a couple of minutes to rate and review this podcast so you can help countless other people discover these incredible stories. And for a transcript of our interview, you can go to my website, lightwatkins.com tunnel. There, you're going to see a link to the transcript along with a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that you can get from me each morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. I've been sending this out to thousands of people each day since 2016, and it's true. People get addicted to them after only a week, which I say is a good addiction, by the way. So I highly recommend signing up for those if you are inspired to do so. And of course, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can always text it to me directly at 323-405-9166. Thanks again for taking the time to listen and for sharing this interview with your friends and your followers. Please make sure to tag me on your social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with the next amazing story from the end of the tunnel. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com. 
and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.